Everyone loves an underdog story. I mean, at least I do. Those great and common themes that we see in literature, we see it in the movies of our time where the underdog, the one that everyone despises and looks down upon and makes fun of and counts of little value and of little work, all of a sudden, by the end of the journey of the underdog there, experiences some type of renaissance, a glorious unveiling, if you will, that proves once and for all to everyone that doubted the underdog and made fun of him and counted him as nothing, that something greater than what everyone else perceived to be true about the underdog and determined that the underdog was, is false. Today in this passage, we're going to see the greatest underdog to triumph story ever. For what scripture reveals to us about the church and her ultimate destiny will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the incalculable worth and value and glory of the bride of Jesus Christ. She's made valuable by God himself. And one day, this glorious bride is going to stand alongside the lamb who alone possesses unspeakable glory. It's the ultimate underdog story. It's, it's the ugly duckling to the beautiful swan, the better than Cinderella story. That's what we're going to look at today. And our main point as we work through this passage is this. In the world to come, the bride of Christ will radiate with the glory of God and dwell securely in the presence of God and reflect the beauty and worth ascribed to her by God. Let's turn our attention to the scripture, Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14. Hear the words of the living God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These are the words of the Lord. Last week, we began to look at the final scene that is unveiled to us in all of the visions that John has been given. It's the vision of the new heaven and the new earth and the glories that are contained therein. It's what God had promised throughout all the Old Testament scripture and what we've been seeing revealed to us in the New Testament that God would be making all things new. This creation would experience a rebirth. This renewed creation would become the home of the glorified and redeemed saints of the living God. One in which God's presence would be everywhere. It's the fulfillment of what God had been promising all along, that he would dwell with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. His presence would be forever with them. The new heaven and the new earth characterized by peace, where evil had been vanquished completely and there is absolutely nothing that could possibly threaten the people of God. A reborn cosmos with no sorrow, no suffering, no sickness, and no death. The vision John sees of this renewed creation, this new heaven and the new earth, in it he also sees, in verse 2 of chapter 21, he sees a city. He says he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, he explains to us through verse 8 some features of the new heaven and the new earth, but he reserves the, the description and the identity and the features of this holy city that he sees coming down from God for this next vision. And it's a passage that is graphically and symbolically rich. There's a lot we're going to work through here, uh, but 
They are symbols after all. It's how we've been interpreting Revelation and it makes sense to continue to look at it this way. And first what we're going to do is uncover the identity of the holy city. That's necessary to understand who is this referring to or what is this referring to. Because depending on your understanding of the end times, you might take this to mean this is a literal city that is going to come down out of heaven and be part of the new earth. So let's begin to look at this. Just as a reminder, where is John when he sees this vision? He's in exile, right? He's on the island of Patmos, right? He's, he's there suffering for Christ, for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And we're told that on the Lord day, he's carried away in the spirit. And he begins to see a revelation given to him from Jesus Christ. First off, he sees Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. Jesus is the one who's unveiled. And all of the visions come to him this particular way. He's being caught up in the spirit. It's a reminder of his prophetic call and commission. And he's commanded to write these things down for the church of Jesus Christ, for her edification, for her comfort, to warn her, to correct her, to rebuke her, but also to instill in her the great hope of what happens to the church when she perseveres throughout the entirety of the church age, experiences the tribulation found in this world, a world that is hostile towards God, energized by the dragon, ruled by the beast and the false prophet, and part of this world system, Babylon, and when the church perseveres to the end, she will experience all of these glories that John sees. So he's carried away in the spirit. But who is it that carries John away in the spirit? We're told an angel does. But it's very descriptive. It's not just any old angel. We're told it's one of the seven angels that contain the seven bowls of the, of, of, of the plagues that were unleashed upon humanity. That's who this angel is. He carries John away to a high mountain. But why this particular angel? Why this reference to it's one of those seven angels that had one of the seven bowls of the plagues? Well, we're told he, he does this to show John the bride. To, to, to show John the wife of the Lamb. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What would we expect to see in this moment? I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now we already know who the, who the bride is. We know that reference. We've looked at it before. The bride is it's the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church of Christ, comprised both of Old Testament and New Testament saints of God. So we would expect to see a people, wouldn't we? But that's not what John sees. John sees a city. A holy city is what he sees coming down from heaven. And this city is resplendent with the glory of God. But why mention this specific angel? Well, as you know, there's a lot of things in Revelation that call us back to other things we've already seen. We've seen various things referred to time and time again in Revelation in which John is contrasting something. Specifically, back in chapter 17, we have this similar reference to this particular angel. In chapter 17, uh, this, this is the portion of scripture about Babylon. So this same angel is mentioned in order to contrast two cities. The city that John sees coming down, this holy city coming down out from heaven, and the city referenced in chapter 17. They are set against each other. Both of the cities there, both the one in 17 and the one here in 21, are referred to as a woman. One, in chapter 17, Babylon is a harlot, is a prostitute. Here in chapter 21, the woman that is revealed to John is a bride and a wife. Babylon, which we looked at previously, the symbol of the ungodly world system, this personification of human culture that has set itself against God and is hostile to God and his people. It's the human race, the entirety of the human race, with all of its socioeconomic, political, and religious idolatry. Babylon, as we saw earlier, is the anti-church, energized by the spirit of the antichrist. And in Revelation 17, 1, this is what John sees. He says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you 
the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. You see the similarity there. He's showing him. He says, come, I'm going to show you something. And what we read today, he's going to show the bride and the wife. But here he says, come, I'm going to show you the judgment against this other woman, Babylon. She's the counterpart to the bride. In verse 3 of chapter 17, it says, He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, similar language. This, this angel carries him away in the spirit, but instead of to a mountain, now where is he carried to? A wilderness. You couldn't have a greater contrast than the glories of heaven and the dry, arid climate, right, of the wilderness, the desert. What does he see also? He sees the city in, in 21 coming down from heaven, but here this city is not coming down from heaven because she's not of heaven. He sees this woman, this city, sitting on what? The beast. The beast. Right? We saw the beast initially in Revelation chapter 13 rising up out of the sea. The beast is the anti-church in the sense that it is all of the, the governments, the political uh, rulers and regimes of this world that are hostile to God and his people. Again, energized by the dragon. So he's also, uh, in 17, we're told that the woman is seated on many waters, which John later tells us in chapter 17 represents all of the community of unbelieving humanity, right? This is where she sits. This is what she is part of. She's not from heaven. She's part of the idolatrous systems of this world. She doesn't belong to the lamb, like the bride coming down out of heaven. She belongs to the dragon, in chapter 17, we saw the harlot arrayed with similar things that are referred to as the church being adorned with, with gold and, and jewels and pearls. She tries to look like the church. She tries to make herself beautiful, but she's not the church. She's a fraud. But you can see her in chapter 21. This is what John is showing us by this vision. This is not Babylon this, the city, Babylon, this is another city. This is the heavenly city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Well, we know then, this holy city can be none other than the community of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. All of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it really can't be any simpler than that, right? This is a reference, the symbol is a reference to what? The church. It's the church. It can't be a literal city from what we're going to see here as well. Look at the description that's given of the city. The city, he sees, has 12 gates. And what's inscribed on each one of those gates? The names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? But he also sees what? That, the foundation stones. The foundation stones of each of the, these walls are also inscribed with names. These names are what? Of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ. Where have we seen before the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles referenced? And what do they represent? They represent the full and complete expression of the people of God. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 plus 12 equals where are my math people? This is not hard, right? It's 24. Well, where have we seen 24? Chapter 4 is the first time we saw it. The 24 elders. John sees before the throne of God, 24 thrones, and seated on each one of those thrones is one of 24 elders wearing golden crowns, worshiping before the throne of God. And these 24 elders represent the totality of all of the saints of God from both the Old Covenant and the new covenant. So this is symbolic of that. This is representative of that. I think it's fascinating that John sees here the name of each of those 12 apostles. Well, what was John? He's an apostle. Imagine him seeing his name on there. Like that blows my mind to even think about it. Here he is, exiled, suffering for Jesus, and he gets this vision of the, of, of, of the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, and he's looking at the names there, and his name is there. That's awesome. That's an aside, but I just think about those kind of things. I think that's glorious there. 
Man, what an encouragement. What a comfort to him to be that. Like, I'm going to be there. This is all worth it. This suffering is worth it. So that's what this is. This is 12 gates. And it says that, that there are three gates on each side. Okay, Three gates on each side of each of the cardinal points of the, of the compass. North, south, east, and west. What we have here being uh, symbolized for us and, and demonstrated to us in the way this city is laid out, it mimics the, the, the encampment of Israel. When each of the tribes, three tribes on each side of the tabernacle, in the north and the south and the east and the west, were arrayed with the tabernacle in the center, this city has a similar layout given to us. It also is reflective here of the reality that these gates face each direction, right? Right from without, north, south, east, and west. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue will enter and be part of the holy city. It's going to be a gloriously diverse community of worshipers of Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem. Again, this is the vision that we've already, we've already seen in chapter 7. John sees the innumerable multitude of saints worshiping before the throne of God, and he sees there from everywhere. Not one ethnic group, every ethnic group, right? Every nation, tribe, language, and tongue is represented here in the new Jerusalem, worshiping before God. And what's he shown? He's shown the bride, right? The bride, we've looked at the bride already. The bride has been made ready. We saw back at the marriage for the marriage supper of the Lamb. She's being beautified for her wedding day. And and here she is, right? She's unveiled. But it also says she's the wife of the Lamb. Wife. What's this a reflection of? It's a reflection of the perfect intimacy and union that the bride has with Jesus Christ, her husband. And it's going to be fully consummated on this day. It's a, it's a glorious picture. But why use this symbol, this image, this picture of a city to describe the people of God, to describe the church of Jesus Christ? Well, this is not a new concept, especially in the New Testament. There are various metaphors and images and, and symbols used in the New Testament to tell us something about the church and, and a facet of her relationship to Jesus Christ. Other than a bride and a wife, what is the church referred to? Or city, a church is referred to as a temple in the New Testament. She's referred to as the body of Christ as well. She's part of the family of God. She's she's likened to a spiritual house being built up. She's referred to as as sheep, as part of the flock of God. She's she's referred as as a branch that is part of the vine. But is the church any of those things literally? No, right? They're metaphors. They're telling us something about how we relate to Jesus Christ. So why is he using a city here? Well, for the same reason a city is symbolic of Babylon in chapter 17. What did the city metaphor represent there? It represented a particular community of humanity. In that case, a particular community of unbelieving humanity. Think about what a city is. Isn't a city just a community of human beings living and working together, working towards a common purpose, potentially for the thriving and flourishing, right, of of the city that they're trying to put together, right? They work together. Uh, you, You think of the first great city mentioned in Scripture, Babel, right? Why was that city, what was the attempt to build that city? Well, the people wanted to stay together. They wanted to come together. They wanted to make their name great. They wanted to achieve something amazing, build this great tower up to heaven. They did not want to be scattered. A city is the ultimate expression of community. So it's a fitting symbol to to look at when it comes to the church. We are a community, the community of, of the redeemed. But unlike the false community of Babylon, this is the true community. Of the saints of the Lamb. Now let's look at some of the description of her appearance in verses 10 through 14. Now, grammatically, this particular passage uh, is clunky in the original. It's like one long compound sentence made up of, of multiple phrases. So let's kind of look at some of these phrases in particular here. Uh, first, we see that the angel carries them away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Why is that important? 
Well, when you look at Old Testament prophecy of the end times temple, the new Jerusalem in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, and in the Psalms and in other places, this holy city was always seen atop a great mountaintop. That's where the holy city would be on a great high mountain. So it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In that final vision given to Ezekiel in the last day's end times temple, this is exactly what he sees. This temple is located atop of a great mountain. So what John is seeing here, the holy city, that's the fulfillment of that prophecy. It's not a literal end times temple. We are not waiting for ethnic Israel to rebuild another temple and begin sacrificing on an altar. We're not waiting for that. That's not the fulfillment of this prophecy. What John sees is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's the church's destiny, to have the glory of God. She's coming down out of heaven from God. Again, she is descending. She's coming down from where? From heaven. What is that a reflection of? What is heaven? Who's, who is heaven? It's God, isn't it? She's coming down from God. God is the source of this perfected, beautiful bride that is presented here. He's the one who has beautified her. He's done all of that. And she has the glory of God. That glory explained here is radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And this is fascinating here. Because in in John's vision here of the holy city, the bride of Christ... The church has this radical similarity to God's glory that he first described to us all the way back in chapter 4. There, we're told that when John sees the throne, he says it irradiated like jasper. He's using the same language here to refer to what he sees as the glory emanating, radiating from the bride, this holy city. The images and descriptors used of God are now attributed to the church. This is mind-blowing. But the church here is arrayed. She's adorned with the glory of God. The glory of God. Back in verse 2, we saw she was prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now it's telling us what that adornment is. That adornment is God's glory. God's glory. What's his glory? His glory is his manifested presence. Anytime you see the glory of God in the Old Testament, what is it that people were experiencing? God's presence like manifesting a certain way to people. How did, how did Moses see it? For him, it was like a, a burning bush. How did the people of God see his glory, right, as they were journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land and manifested as a cloud by day leading and guiding them and then and fire by night? What consumed the sacrifices, right, uh, that, that were made by the priests? It was fire that came down from heaven. All of them said that's God's glory. It's his manifested presence. And here, that's what this church, the church radiates with. Back in the final eight chapters of Ezekiel, which is of this, this glorious end times temple uh, where God's glory would be forever, that whole sequence of vision they're given to Ezekiel ends in Ezekiel forty-eight thirty-five, telling us the name of the city. And the name of the city is Yahweh is there. The Lord is there. Everywhere in the city, everywhere in that temple, it's not just confined to the Holy of Holies. God is is there. John now reinterprets Ezekiel's vision to say that this community of people who belong to God are his temple. And in them, his glory dwells. This is mind-blowing. Through the, even though this perfected church here that, that, that we're seeing here, this glory of God is radiating from her in magnificent splendor. This is what beautifies the bride. This is what everyone sees of the bride. But it's God's glory. This glory is not intrinsic to the bride. It's derived from God. He's the source of it. Her beauty is because of what God has done to make her beautiful. And what makes her beautiful is his glory. What makes her beautiful is his abiding presence, God dwelling with her. It's what makes her shimmer. Like the most precious and rarest of jewels. 
So even though right now the bride is what's being showcased to us, this is what John is seeing, but she's reflecting in her beauty and glory and splendor is God. Though she's the spectacle in this vision, the ultimate spectacle is God. Right? And what, what we see there is that God is what's most beautiful and precious in heaven and of this particular scene. Think about this for a moment. No matter how we describe the condition of the church today, how we might look at the church as ugly as she is, how distorted things are in the church, how divided the church seems at times, the sin that is present in the church, and all of those things. What the church is today is not what she will be. And what she will be is glorious. Absolutely glorious. You know, Scripture doesn't hide the flaws of the church. I mean, look at these letters that Jesus personally wrote to each of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And for sure, there are a lot of things to be commended, right? There was a church there that was doctrinally correct. There was a church that was persevering. There, There was a church there that was called spiritually rich by Jesus. Jesus Jesus commends them for their faithfulness and their perseverance under immense pressure. He commends them for being loving and being known as a loving church. He talks about those who refuse to deny his name, though they were persecuted. But that's not all it contains, does it? It's not just all high praise from Jesus to the church. You know, there was rebuke. There was correction. To that same church that was doctrinally correct, he rebukes them for what? Abandoning their first love. To that church, he he applauds for being persevering. They were allowing false teaching in their midst. The church that was this loving church was so loving and so wishy-washy in their love, right? That they were allowing and tolerating false teachers in their midst. Some churches Jesus called dead had a reputation for being alive, but he said, you're dead. There's another church there that he mentions that almost made Jesus blow chunks. So scripture doesn't hide the fact that the church is imperfect and sinful and flawed here in the now and here in the present. Church has many flaws. All churches do. All of the people in the church do. Warts, blemishes, spots. Yet she's Christ's bride. And he is making her beautiful. You know what's in fashion today amongst even Christians, professing Christians? To dunk on the church. To just talk about how the church screws up and fails in absolutely everything. Blaming the church for everything. What she's not doing, what she is doing, what she should be doing, right? Oh, this is the problems in the world today. It's all because of the church. If only the church would just do this. If only the church would do that then everything would be awesome. That's one of the stupidest things to say. It truly is. It's not the church's fault to say that, to blame the church for all things, blame the church for whatever's wrong in society and culture. Again, this is not to say that the church is right and gets everything right. This is not to say that the church is perfect. She is not. She's not. But what I find fascinating is nothing in Revelation gives us the indication that all that we see going wrong in this world, all that is happening in the world, in Revelation, is the church's fault. I don't see that there. I don't see blame laid at the feet of the church for all of the problems in the world, or what the church is doing and isn't doing. Even though it doesn't present her as perfect. But where does it lay the problems? Where does it lay the sin? Where does it lay the hostility? The feet of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and Babylon and unbelieving humanity. We must never forget the ultimate destiny of the bride, of the church of Jesus Christ. She's being made beautiful. She's being prepared for her wedding day. And she will be adorned with the radiance of the glory of God. I want to caution you. Be careful how you speak of Christ's bride. Be very careful. You need to love Christ's bride with all of her flaws, warts, 
wrinkles and spots. And she's got a lot of them. Why? Because the church is made up of people like us. Don't forget that. But you can't claim to love Christ and despise his bride. You can't do that. You know, you can tell me you love me all you want. But if you say something nasty about Betsa, you might get punched in the mouth. Right? But even professing Christians think nothing of slamming the church and dunking on the church and insulting the church and bad-mouthing the church and calling her names and then saying the same breath, but I love Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, you may not be concerned about me punching you in the mouth if you say something bad about Betsa. You should be infinitely more concerned about what Jesus might do to those who slam his bride, whom he purchased and redeemed with his blood, and whom he's making beautiful. It's his church. It's not ours. We're his people. Brothers and sisters, don't get into this stuff, man. We see that this is, this is the ugly part of our culture today. Church isn't perfect. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you, that we should sugarcoat and gloss over the sins of the church. I'm not saying that at all. But we should be also focused not just on the present condition of the church, but her future glory. Because if we look more to the future glory of what we're becoming, that's what we will strive for. That's what we will strive to be because we know that's what Christ is doing in her and how he will present her to himself on that day. It's his church, and he's beautifying her, and she's going to be glorious. Let's move on from there. Let's look at the security of the holy city. In the ancient world, nothing was more important to the safety and security of a city than its walls. If you lived behind the walls, you felt safe and secure. If you lived in a tent, right, in the wilderness, not so safe and secure, right? Walls are what distinguish great cities in the ancient world. Now, when we think of cities today, what distinguishes and marks and identifies a, a great city, we think of its skyline, right? Skyscrapers, landmarks, and other features, but not in the ancient world. A city with a wall was a great city. Its people would be safe and secure, ideally, behind that. Why do you think Nehemiah was so anxious to get back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? They were in decay. They were falling apart. There were breaches in it. And he knew if he could rebuild the wall, the people could reclaim their identity and find safety behind her walls. So John now sees here in this holy city a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels. Again, not a literal wall, all right? Not a literal wall with gates, but symbols representing a powerful reality. The church in her new home, which is the new heaven and the new earth, is completely safe and secure in her perfect union with God. Where is she? She's safe behind impenetrable walls. She is in God. Her eternal security can never be threatened because God is safeguarding and protecting her. And nothing will jeopardize that. Nothing at all. Take note of the sentries keeping watch at each one of the gates. He says there are 12 angels, one at each of those gates. They are stationed there, 12 of them. Keep in mind, it took only two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine 12 angels, right? It's pretty amazing. But this is, this is a callback to a scene all the way back in Genesis, where God stations the cherubim at the entrance to the garden to safeguard and, and keep people from accessing the tree of life, right? In Genesis 3.24. Point is that nothing is going to get past these sentries, these watchmen that are guarding each one of the gates. Nothing that is not part of the holy city will be allowed to enter it. In fact, and we'll look at this next week, but verse 27 tells us that nothing unclean or profane will ever enter it. There are no worries, there are no threats in the holy city. And these walls are symbolic of God's complete protection of his people. We've already seen this. Everything that could have jeopardized God's people, the church, in her union with Christ, has already been removed, has been vanquished, has been eliminated. 
It is the full realization of that promise that you and I hold dear to in Romans 8.39. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing that will ever again spoil God's place or his people. This new creation is pristine. It's undefiled. And it is completely secure. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we desire? We all desire security in this life. Don't we? You don't leave your money out, do you? Your wallet, your purse, right, for just anyone all to go through. You don't leave your doors unlocked, do you? Your windows open at night. No, we, we take great pains to, to, to have some sense of security in our lives. So we lock the doors. We have alarm systems, right? We have security cameras looking at every vulnerable point around the perimeter of our home. Some of you have dogs, and while they may make wonderful pets, you rejoice that they bark, right? If, if they sense somebody approaching your house that they don't recognize, right? We do that. We have firearms to protect ourselves against a home invasion. We long for, desire, and want security. I'll never forget the day our house was broken into a number of years back. That feeling of coming home in the afternoon and going to my office and seeing the window broken, everything on my desk on the floor, and discovering that, that things had been stolen from our, from our house. What, what a violation that was of, of, of something that was just our home, our, our, our refuge. It, it robbed us not just of material possessions, but that, that sense we should have of security within the confines, confines of our own house. Robbed us of peace. I mean, every night, I I didn't sleep for days. Every little sound I heard, man, I was reaching for my Glock. (laughs) I wanted security, and something had taken it from us. But not here. You're not going to have that. The amazing thing in verse 25, it tells us that though there are gates, those gates are never closed. Those gates are never locked in the holy city. They'll never be shut Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? A closed gate is secure. An open gate, not so secure. But what's the point? In our current world, that's the truth. In this world, no, there's no need for locked doors. There's no need for locked gates. There's no threat at all. That's what God promised in Zechariah to his people. Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this great promise of this end time holy city. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Look, as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it and i will be to her a wall of fire all around declares the lord and i will be the glory in her midst isn't that awesome there like zechariah is seeing the same thing john is seeing here the walls are symbolic the point is Jerusalem is going to be like a city with no walls the walls are completely unnecessary why the glory of god radiates from her the glory of god is encompassed round about her and he's dwelling with his people so the city is strong and secure and we will be safe and have that kind of security on that day that we long for let's read revelation 21 15 through 17 to look at the holiness and value of the holy city and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold listen to that same language right angels with Measuring rods. We see that multiple times in Old Testament prophecy. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. So John now sees here, the angel has something in his hand. He has a measuring rod made of gold. What's he going to do? He's going to measure 
the city, right? When we have this aspect of measuring in the Old Testament, it's not like he's taking a ruler just to see. Measurement is what defines what's in and what's out. Measurement defines who is part of this and who is excluded from it, all right? So that's kind of what's, what's, when we have that language of measuring, that's what's in view here. What John sees is the fulfillment of, again, what Ezekiel saw in his vision of the final end times temple, where an angel is also measuring out all of the temple, all of the areas of the temple, the the inner court, the outer courts, the perimeter, the wall, um, the holy of holies, everything is measured by that temple. And, And Ezekiel gets this great tour of the temple and its compound by that angel, right? He's measuring the city to determine its boundaries. Now, Again, is this a literal city? No, it's not a literal city, right? Because we're talking about people, not a cosmopolitan city here. And John isn't providing these details of these, well, we, could, we would say, well, these are precise measurements. He's not providing these as, as architectural and mathematical considerations. That's not what's John's burden here. What John tells us here is that it's a city that's foursquare. It's actually a four-cornered city, its length and width and height are the same, right? So if its length and width are the same, we go, well, that's a perfect square, isn't it? But when we say its length and width and height are the same, now what are we talking about? A cube, right? A cube. People get scared when you ask those questions. I don't math. I don't remember geometry. That was so long ago. I'm not going to ask you to do math because John's not asking us to do math here, right? So the city is not just a square. The city is a perfect cube. And and a a perfect geometric cube, right, in in John's time here, would have been like one of the ultimate standards of perfection, right? It's it's, it's perfectly shaped, this cube. But there's only one other place in the Bible that we have a reference to this geometric shape of a cube. And I've mentioned it before. Do you recall what that is? It's the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies is also a perfect cube, right? So what is John saying here? Well, the Holy of Holies is in a temple, and if the Holy of Holies was the manifestation of God's presence, right, that's where God's presence was, and if this city is a perfect cube, just as the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube, then what does this mean? It means that this city is a temple. This city is a temple where God's presence dwells his manifest presence the whole city is the holy of holies why because god is present everywhere the bride is the temple that's the imagery in view here again we saw back in in verse three right the dwelling place of god is with man well if the dwelling place of god is with man all of that is holy all of that is made holy all of it is the holy of holies and john is amplifying Right here in this vision, what he, we've already been shown there back in verse three about, uh, verse two rather, what he sees about the holy city. Now, again, don't get hung up on the measurements, all right? It's not important, right? Exact measure, because we're not talking about a literal city here, right? But what's important is the repeated use of a certain number, a number 12 and its multiples. We've seen this 12, right? We already just talked about the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles representing the totality of the people of God. Well, right here we're told what? We're told that the length and width and height of this cube is 12,000 stadia. Now, this can't be a literal measurement. Some of your translations might actually already give you what that refers to approximately in miles. Some of your translation may say, 1,400 miles or 1,500 miles. And, and I really hate the way that that's translated because it robs it of its symbolism and meaning here. 12,000 is 12 times 1,000, right? That equals 12,000. The number 1,000 we've looked at before refers to a fullness, a large and vast amount like the millennial reign of Christ. 1,000 years. It's not 1,000 literal years. It's just talking about a large span of time here. So now we have 12 times 1,000. John is saying that by this measurement that the whole world, the whole of the new creation is going to be the holy of holies. Here's what's interesting. 
that measurement 12,000 stadia was the approximate size of the known Hellenistic world in John's day. That was the whole world to them. That was the consideration of what the whole world was comprised of here. He's saying the whole world is going to become the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. So the holy city will display the fullness of God's presence for all eternity with the totality of his people. His burden isn't to give you a blueprint of the city or check out this architectural rendering of the city so you can see, no, no, it's not a literal city here. What he's saying here is he's trying to underscore the reality of the holiness of this new world order. It will be completely engulfed by the presence of God and his glory. So 12, this chapter is full of 12s. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 angels, 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 pearls, 12 precious stones, 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits. That's 12 times 12. This is not just some mathematical peculiarity here. Or, or just John trying to show us something mathematical here. It's symbolic. It's figurative. The fullness of God's presence with the fullness of God's people. That's the holy city. That's what it's about. And this holy city is a people for a place. The place is the new heaven and the new earth. And wherever the people of, go, of God go in this place, it's the holy of holies. The presence of God is everywhere. It's everywhere. And to further demonstrate this, let's look at the materials that John describes here that are used to construct the holy city. Revelation 21, 18 through 21. The city was built of jasper. Again, there's that reference to that, that um, precious stone there that was descriptive of what John saw in the throne room scene in chapter 4. The city was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the third, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This is, this is interesting here, isn't it? When he looks at the city, it's just a dazzling array of precious stones. Imagine if we looked around, we think of precious stones and minerals. We think of gold. We think of silver. We think of diamonds. Well, like this is everywhere you look in the holy city. The materials used to construct the city are ones that reveal the worth and value of the city that frankly is beyond our ability to even comprehend. It's a city of inestimable worth. Everything about this city, think about this. What does it scream? Limitless wealth, worth, resources, all of that. It's an unlimited supply of the costliest of minerals and precious stones. This is what John sees makes up the holy city of God. These stones are so common that even the foundations of the walls, do you even see the foundations of anything? Below the ground. You don't see the foundation of If you see the foundation of your house, call somebody because that's not a good thing, right? You shouldn't see that. It's the supporting structure. Well, even the supporting structure of the walls is, is made up of the costliest of, of, of stones and gemstones and jewels. Look, even the streets of the city are paved with gold. The place where your feet walk is what the, the streets are paved with. And we think gold is like, I would love to have a lot of gold, and so would you. We treasure it, we value it, we want more of it. Well, it's so common there that you just walk on it everywhere you go in the holy city. Now, these stones here have some correlations and allusions in Scripture. The stones are, some of these stones are listed in Genesis chapter 2 as found in Eden, the garden temple of God. They're mentioned in Ezekiel 28 associated with the garden. In Solomon's temple, we're told that the foundation was laid with a number of costly stones. And then there's also the allusion here to the breastplate of the high priest. 
12 precious stones were woven into the high priest's breastplate. What did he do? He put that on as he was going in to enter into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. That breastplate had 12 stones. Each of those stones stood for one of the tribes of Israel. Fascinating, isn't it? Where was the high priest going? To the Holy of Holies. Where are these stones? In the Holy of Holies. What is the Holy of Holies? It's the bride of Christ. It's the bride of Christ because the manifest presence of God is everywhere. Those stones reflect the beauty of God, radiating his glory and great splendor. Reflected in Eden, reflected in the temple, reflected in the high priest's uh, breastplate, and now will be gloriously displayed everywhere in the new Jerusalem that will shine with the beauty and glory of God. What's he seeing in this vision? What's he seeing with these stones? It's simply this. The stones that adorn the foundation of the walls of the city and everything in the city symbolically represent God's people likened to these precious stones reflecting the beauty and glory of God and the great value God has assigned to her. Look at the gates. What are these gates made of? A single pearl you've seen a pearl right i mean i haven't really seen anything probably bigger than a golf ball as a pearl and that has a number of imperfections and flaws in it but here it says each gate is made up one massive giant single pearl can you imagine the size of that oyster right (laughs) that pearl grew in right And that would be amazing other than that this is not literal, right? It's symbolic, right? One massive pearl. In this Greco-Roman world that John is in and writing from here, a single perfect pearl would be worth more than its weight in gold. It was extremely valuable. Think of the parable Jesus told, right, of the merchant who finds a pearl like this. And what does he do? goes to sell all of his possessions, right? To come back and to be able to be purchased this this pearl of great price here. The point is, how could you even begin to put a value on a city constructed with priceless, precious, exquisite gemstones? You can't put a value on it. Can't. It's a city of incalculable value. And who is that city? It's the bride of Christ. She is of incalculable value and worth to God. What we're seeing in the description of this city is a reflection of who we are. I want you to get that. It's a mirror. The infinite value and worth of the bride is what is being revealed to John and now to us. And the lamb is the one who has assigned that value to his bride. She's worth more than a limitless supply of every precious gemstone in all of creation. The church's value, brothers and sisters, is not assigned to her and based upon what the world thinks of the church. The church's value is not assigned by anyone who has a grievance against the church. The church's value is not determined by anything the church does or does not do. In fact, the church herself cannot even assign a value and have a proper estimation of herself. No, the church's value is assigned by the one who shed his blood, which is of incalculable value, to purchase and redeem her. He sets her worth and value. And it is Christ that we see here who has raised the church, his bride, to this place of honor. God is the one himself who will adorn her with his glory. He's the one who will make her holy and it is God himself who will preserve her and protect her and keep her safe for all eternity. This is the picture John is presenting to us with all of these beautiful descriptions and symbols and images of the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's what's happening there. But what are we to do with that? Well, that's in the future, right? That's, that's our destiny. That's... that's what it's going to be, but what about now? Well, I want you to recognize something important. If that is the destiny of the church, then brothers and sisters, you need to have hope for the church. You need to have hope for the church. We shouldn't be down on the church. 
We shouldn't those people joining the chorus that says, oh, the church, I don't even know if the church is going to make it. Really? You don't know if the church is going to make it? Like, it's here, right? The church is not only going to make it, the church is going to be glorious. She's going to be glorious. And we're looking into a mirror. It is what we will be, no matter what we look like now. And we kind of look ugly sometimes. I know. But we are not presently what we will be on that day. What we look like now is not what we will look like on that day. And that's good news for you individually, right? You yourself are being sanctified. You yourself are being beautified. You yourself are being made like Christ. He's making us ready for that day. He's making us holy as Christ is holy without spot or blemish. And on that day, you and I will be part then of this perfected, glorious, radiant church of Jesus Christ. What John says in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's our present reality in Christ. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What he's saying, hey, look, a snapshot of what you look like right now is not what you will look like on that day. Even though the present reality is that you are in Christ, you're a child of God, this is your destiny. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We don't know what this is going to be like, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. There's hope for the church. There's hope for you. And for me, in Christ Jesus, he's purifying us, beautifying us, and making us like Christ. Which in turn should cause us to pursue holiness. Second Peter chapter 3, 11 through 13. This is Peter writing of these end time final events. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, what? We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If that's the reality, if that's where we have staked our hope in that promise, he's saying here, what kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness and purity if that's our destiny, if that's what's coming? Pursue holiness. It should provoke that in us. Like we, we want that. All of those, those images, it talks about gold as transparent, right? Like crystal and glass. What does that mean? Speaking of purity, there's nothing impure there. Now, yes, this is something God does in us as a work of his spirit sanctifying us. But over and over and again in Scripture, we're told to strive for holiness, pursue holiness, without which no one will see God. We should desire holiness. That's what God is producing in us. And lastly, love the church. Love the bride of Jesus Christ. Esteem the church. Renew your commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. Forgive the church where she has wronged you or wounded you. Preserve the unity of the church. Live out the rest of your days in appreciation for the supreme value that the church has, not to us, but to God, but to the Lamb. When we look at the church on that day, we see there's nothing plain or ordinary about her. Nothing at all. She's radiant. She's glorious. She is holy to the Lord. She is set apart for Him. She's the temple of the living God. Do you love his church? Do you love his people? Because you cannot hate the church, hate his people, and claim to love her Savior. It's just not that way. All of these things should cause us to fall down and worship God, who will bring this about, who will make us like this on that day. We're going to walk through a lot of stuff in this world. We're going we're gonna to face a lot of hurts in the church, right? Because we are sinners, doing life with sinners. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to sin against one another. 
But if this is before us, the hope of what the church will actually be on that day, that's not a, a hope. Like we, we wish for things like, I hope that will come to pass. No, this is biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty. It is that right now, even though it is not fully yet manifested. So with that in mind, we say, Lord, help us to love the church. Help us to pursue holiness so that we're, we're honoring you and glorifying you and we're not wounding and hurting our brothers and sisters. Help me preserve the unity of my church by not backbiting and gossiping and slandering other believers in the church. Help me to pray for the church, for, the, for this glorious reality that's going to come, that God would be working in us to make us more and more like Jesus, every single one of us. This is our ultimate destiny. This is what we will be. So let's strive to live in such a way that anticipates our great and glorious destiny as the bride, the wife of the Lamb, resplendent with the glory of God, and brothers and sisters basking in His glory for all of eternity.